Amen. It's good to have you here. Open up your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. We are going to be rocking it out this year in Ephesians. And today I get the honor of doing a part two on the sermon worthy that we heard last week. Did anybody remember the sermon worthy last week? Living worthy of your calling. And so one of the important things I wanted to give you is that God makes you worthy of salvation, qualifies you to be saved so that you can live a saved life. Now today I want to expand on that and show you a graphic that I think will help you with, that will tie it in with some of the other scriptures. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 in our sermon series in him. I'm getting just a slight bit of feedback, my brother. Thank you. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Everybody say, live worthy. Thank you. Say it again. Live worthy. Okay, that's the title of today's message. Now, how are we going to live worthy is verse 2. Let's read that together. One, two, three. Be completely, be patient and love Okay, now listen as I read it. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. See how that works? That's how we live worthy. Those are the commands that we keep to show what God did on the inside of us. So there is a proving of your salvation. There is a displaying of what God has done on the inside of you. And then the last two verses are the creed, which we'll go through in the following weeks. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all and in all. So just take this passage together. Just look at these six verses. It's very simple. Paul has finished his prayer in chapter 3, and now he is saying, as a prisoner of the Lord, so by example, he's saying, because I've suffered for doing what is good, I want you now to live a life worthy of the calling you received. And then he breaks it down, gives us summaries, which Paul always does in a great way. The fruit of the Spirit is a summary. But what if I told you there's more fruit of the Spirit than what you see in that list of nine? There is, because that's just a summary. Righteousness is not listed in the fruit of the Spirit in that summary. So is righteousness not a fruit of the Spirit? No, righteousness is a fruit of the Spirit, but Paul loves summarizing things. What if there were more gifts of the Spirit other than the nine that Paul mentioned? Well, we know that there are. There's the gift of administration and the service gifts, and those are also spiritual. Those are found in Romans. So we don't want to take Paul's list and say when he makes a list that it's an isolated list, that we can't go to the Scriptures and pull out other things. And then at the same time, we should understand there's a reason for a list, so we shouldn't just throw in things into that list whenever we think we want to or uh, you know, just think, well, I think this would be cool to put in there. So here is a summary of Paul teaching us how to live worthy of our calling. Now, he could have named off a thousand different things. He could have said, read your Bible, pray, go to church, uh, you know, love your neighbor, all of these things. But right here at this point, the Holy Spirit, who is speaking through Paul, gives us a good summary. And there's basically four things he tells us to do. Be completely humble. 
be gentle, bear with one another in love. And so if I'm bearing with you in love, which is the word forbearance, then I'm also going to be loving you and being kind to you and those kinds of things we would think of neighborly love. And then the fourth one is live in unity, making every effort to live in the unity of the Spirit, which is the bond of peace. So notice that these are the things that we do. This is what I do as a Christian. Now, sometimes people right here get a little bit confused, and they'll make a statement that has a partial truth to it, so I want you to hear it in its fullness so you can get the context. And the partial truth is, you do your part, and God will do his part. How many of you ever heard that before? Okay. Now, what's true about that is that there is a cooperation that we do. We have a part to play, but it doesn't work the way that statement says it. The way the statement gives you the impression is that God is out there inactive in our lives, waiting now for us to get active, and then once we get active, make a step towards him, then he makes a step towards us. So that's incorrect. This is how it actually works. God does his part and then asks us in cooperation operation to do our part. So God initiates salvation. I didn't go looking for God when I was a lost sheep. I was looking for sin. God came looking for me. So you see the difference? God comes and initiates the action of love. When we were disobedient in our sin, we were in love with the world, but God was in love with us. Do you see how that works? So God initiates us. We call this prevenient grace. God comes to us first and enlightens our heart. In John chapter 1, it says, in him was light, and that life, or excuse me, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. How many today have life? Then if you have life, you have the light given by Jesus Christ. That light, or what we would call the spark of the divine, and there's another phrase that can get you in trouble if you use it the wrong way, but our life is a spark of the divine, and it's meant to draw us back to the flame of God. Isn't that deep? So the spark came from God, and the magnet is pulling us. His magnet is pulling us back to him. His gravitational pull is pulling us in to a love relationship. So you actually have to resist the grace of God to go to hell, but just let go to go to heaven. Okay, so now think of it like this. God does his part first. He puts in us life. That life is light to our soul, which I believe is light to our conscience. And through the light of our conscience, we can know ourselves and we can know him. And now we're drawn to him. But then we have a choice. We have a choice now to cooperate with his power. Now that cooperation is called synergism. Everybody say synergism. Have you ever heard that on your job, that we need to have some synergy here? Synergy talks about multiple groups working together. Monergism is the belief that only God does all the action. So you could say, uh, well, I won't do anything until God does what he's going to do. Well, that would be a false belief because God says he's already done things for you. And now he's waiting for you to respond to his call. So God is not just going to monergistically, and energy is in the word monergism and the word synergism. It's the word energy that's in there, okay? So it's a monosource of the energy, only God moving you, or it's a synergistic force of energy, God moving with you. How many like the term dancing with the divine? See, that's that term that I actually came up with. I, I borrow a lot of terms. Don't get me wrong. I am a pastor, and I borrow a lot of terms. It's not stealing, as long as you don't say you made it up. So I say, I give credit. You know, I say I borrow these all the time, so I don't say it come from me. But this one actually came from me. 
dancing with the divine. Now, would it be fun to dance with somebody that didn't want to dance with you? And so you're forcing them to move with you and all of that. No, that wouldn't be fun. So monergistic dancing would not be fun. One person having the energy would not be fun. Even when my children get on my feet and I kind of dance with them, they're cooperating by not being stiff and letting the motion go through them, right? Letting the energy come through them. And so the idea is that God is wanting to move with you and move through you. And so there is a part you play after you respond to what God has done already on the inside of you. Somebody say, make it plain. Well, that's why I have charts. And this is one of the actual uh, foundations of philosophy. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. And that is the difference between actuality and potentiality. So some of you might not have thought you were going to get deep today, but welcome to Metro Praise where we love to get deep in the spirit. So Aristotle had a thought that he had to begin to work through, and his thought had to do with motion. Now, I know for all of us, motion seems to be so simple, but it's actually very complicated when you start to get deep into it. Why do things move? Why are things allowed to move? Have you ever had a dream where you couldn't move, where you were stuck? Wasn't that one of the worst feelings? Or you were in a fight, gentlemen, and you were trying to throw a punch, or girls, maybe you dream like this too, and you couldn't throw that punch? Wasn't that like the worst feeling? I don't know about you, but those are the worst feelings. Or sleep paralysis, when you're waking up and your brain wakes up faster than your body and you want to move and you think it's El Diablo, Satanás, get away from me. <sighs> you know? Now, some people may think that's the devil, but it's actually called sleep paralysis. Your brain woke up faster than your body. Well, Aristotle had to deal with this. His question was, how do things actually move and become and have their being? Are they always that state of being and then they transform over time? So is it actually what they are? Or is there a differentiation between what they actually are and what they can potentially be and the motion, the movement, the activity of life changes from actuality to potentiality? And there was actually some Greek philosophers that disbelieved in motion altogether, that it was an illusion, that actually you were this the whole entire time, but there was this different manifestations of your actuality. But Aristotle built this thought, and then Descartes went further with it. And so today I want to borrow it and apply it to our theology today. So philosophy, philo, is, uh, is love, and osophy is the study of wisdom. So we love the study of wisdom. And we, we talk about uh, philo, we talk about loving what God is, because the Bible says God is wisdom. And Sophia, it's it's a word that's in the Greek means wisdom. That's why we put Sophia at the end of all of our studies of, of learning. So uh, not only does philosophia have that word phia there, sophi, which is there in the English, but also theology and the, uh, the ology at the end, theo being God, and ology at the end has to do with the study of. So wisdom is the study of all things, and philosophy is the love of the study of Sophia, wisdom. Are you guys tracking with me, okay? So we're just going to get a little deep here. And so what the Bible actually tells us is that wisdom is not like a piece of paper that says two plus two equals four. It's not information. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is wisdom. And that also logic belongs to God. Did you know that? In the beginning was the Logos. What word does Logos sound like? In the beginning was logic as a person. 
That's why whenever we use the idea of faith, we never want to be fideistic. Fideism is the belief that God is illogical and it only operates on faith and you'll never understand it, so don't try. We're not fideistic. We're not those who just believe in a blind kind of faith. No, we believe that everything God does is actually logical. You can study this in the epistemic view of miracles. This was actually one of the great things that transformed my minds and how my mind and how God did miracles is that one day we'll understand it as we understand math and science and all of these things. And this was actually a belief of a lot of the famous philosophers like C.S. Lewis and I see my brother Nadi. We've talked about it, the epistemic view of miracles. And so when Jesus is walking on water, he's not defying the law of nature. He's not defying it. He's not being illogical to it. What he is doing is operating by a principle that's higher than H2O and the, the surface level that it has, what it can contain. So God God is not illogical. God is the source of all logic. And so when he's walking on water, he's doing something based upon his code. Everybody say his code. So the code of heaven is this. God gets to operate in the natural world for his glory. Is that illogical? No, if the, if the one making this Bart Simpson cartoons wants to make Bart Simpson walk on water in the cartoon, is there anything illogical about that? No, the creator of the cartoon has the code and can use the code to create Bart Simpson doing whatever he wants to do. He's not violating the laws of the code. He may have laws in the code that he uses as his framework, that Bart Simpson won't walk through a door. Like some of you in video games, you'll see it, you'll see it, there'll be a little uh, twitch, you know, you'll walk through a door or get stuck in the middle and they'll start going like this. You see, they'll make these laws that say, well, Bart Simpson, when he reaches the wall, he'll just stop and then he has to turn and they'll put these laws of motion in their cartoons. But now if he says, I want to make Bart Simpson walk through a wall, he hasn't violated the code of the wall. He just rewrote the code. He doesn't violate the code. He just rewrites and says, now Bart Simpson, dot, 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 can walk through a wall. And so when Jesus met the disciples and walked through a wall, he was not violating the law of nature. It was the law of God being written into the law of nature differently than it had been written before. Just think of this. Miracles are not violations. They're just different actions of God in the natural world. Now, going back to understanding motion and understanding how God is doing things in the world, actually, everything is a miracle. That's why I wanted you to understand that everything's a miracle. Why do flowers grow the way they do every single time? Why do babies grow the way that they do? Why is gravity the way that it is? Why are there constants in nature that govern the world? These things are actually there given to us by God. And then in the actual world, God gives us potentiality to bring forth things from the actual world in the system that brings him glory. So the natural world brings God glory when we keep our feet on the ground instead of floating off into the air. How many wish though every now and then you could float off into the air and maybe just have a little, little flight here, you know, just go up into the clouds. But you see, God gets glory by the constant of gravity. God gets glory from the constant of gravity. And you know, a lot of people actually don't know this. Not only is everything in motion around us right now, but did you know that the entire galaxy is in motion? 
The entire Milky Way galaxy is moving right now. Everything is in motion because ever since he put it in motion, it has not stopped. So the galaxies are moving, the planets are moving, and they're all going in a certain motion. We've been able to track that out. So here's the deal. How do things continue in motion and move forward in life? How does growth actually happen? How does potentiality and activity happen in the natural world? It's the gift of God. The motion of the world is the gift of God. He is the prime mover. You ever heard that phrase before, God is the prime mover? I'm looking at a philosopher right here, a professor. You see, that's what Thomas Aquinas believed, is that God was the prime mover. Because you have to look at it just very simple, as I've taught you guys before in understanding creation. Just look at causation just for a minute, okay? So I like to go shoot guns. So I'm holding my gun. I'll point it this way. I'm holding my gun. I pull the trigger. The trigger pulls a mechanism. The mechanism hits the round. The round explodes with the gunpowder. The gunpowder pushes forward the projectile. What happens to be the bullet? Know the difference. The bullet's what, what moves. The round is what you put into the gun, okay? We don't shoot bullets. We shoot rounds, okay? But the bullet at the end is what gets shot out of the round, and now the, the round goes to the cartridge, goes to the floor, and the bullet moves. Okay, but what moved my finger? Okay, so I move the trigger, the trigger moves, the mechanism that, that pushes onto the round, and then the bullet goes down range. But what moved me? Then you say, Joe, your thought moved me. Where did my thought come from? Well, Joe, you were created by a mommy or daddy. You see, now you're going to have to go all the way back to what was the first motion? What was the first? Hyunkin! And pushed everything out. What was the first motion? It's God. God is the first mover. God moves. And that's why when Paul talks in Acts 17 on the, the, the hill of Mars Hill there to the pagans, he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. He was answering their deepest philosophical questions. He was saying motion comes from him. Being comes from him. But I want to stay on this motion. Everybody say motion. And so what you now have to see is that motion is a gift of God. The entire universe in motion is the gift of God from you and the body that you have, being able to move with the thoughts and the control that you have to the uh, natural order of being able to move into this world. And as we said before, the galaxies themselves moving, and even times and seasons, etc. These are the gifts of God. And so when it comes to our Christian walk, what we have to see is that God gives us the potential to move. He gives us the ability to have activity, but he first changes our actuality and our identity. Let's just talk about this for a moment. Let's get, let's get a little more deep here now. It will be practical, but still a little deep. Can a sinner move into the righteous things of God? No, it's impossible. It's an impossibility for a sinner to move into the things of God. They cannot all they can do is stop in their motion and surrender to God, be born again, and then be moved by the Spirit to live for God. You can never live for God without the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
Don't ever think to yourself, because you have free will, that you're free willy, somehow autonomous in this world, just floating around. You are not autonomous. You are not in charge of your own destiny. And no one is. Every molecule is being held together by God. But those who are Christians could not do one thing righteous unless the Spirit moved them to do the righteous thing. Now, what is amazing is that the Bible says, keep in step with the Spirit, is the Bible once again gives us a synergistic relationship, a dancing with the Spirit, not a forcing of obedience. So do I choose to move with God? Absolutely. It's my choice to move with God. But could I ever move in a righteous way without God? No. He always has to take the step. He always has to lead. Can you do a heart transplant on yourself? No. And then could you make your heart beat righteously for the Lord? No. You cannot change yourself, and you cannot renovate yourself, and you cannot do anything to yourself except sin and wickedness because your motion is the motion of damnation. Your direction is the motion of the pit of hell. So the one that's reborn is now magnetized, fully connected to the Holy Spirit, and meant to be all that God called them to be. So God will move you to keep his laws. God will move you. Somebody say, God will move me. So I want you to stop and think about that for a second. If God will move me, who initiates the move to righteousness? God. But do I have to cooperate? Yes, I have to cooperate to move with God. But can I move in righteousness without God? No, I can't. The Bible teaches us that I cannot move without God. I cannot do one thing without God. So there's some of you, even as Christians, and that's why I went through the philosophy of this, is that, that there's some of you as Christians that actually believe there's somehow an independence in your Christianity, that you can somehow do this without the Lord, and that the Lord somehow is waiting for you to do certain kinds of actions and activities. But that is not true, my friends. What you are in is a relationship of movement, and God is initiating the moves all the time. And what God wants you to do is keep moving with them. Everybody say, keep moving with the Lord. I want to show you this scripture in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27. It keeps going to Ezra, but go there with me quickly. Ezekiel chapter 36, 27 says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Who moves you? I said, who moves you? God moves you. What person of God moves you? The Spirit. Paul also said, which so powerfully works within me. I want to show you that as well. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. I see some stairs, so that's why I got to go to extra land yap scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29 teaches us that in God is the movement first, and then we have to allow ourselves to be moved. Why is this so important? Because every single excuse you ever make is dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend. Paul is saying, I'm working hard. I am doing the things that God told me to do. I am walking worthy of my calling with all the energy. Remember we talked about energia. That's the center word there of synergism or monergism. With all the energy, Christ so powerfully what? Christ so powerfully what? Works in me. 
The prophet said, the Spirit will move me. Here in Colossians, it says, the power of God gives me the power I need. Okay? Now let's go back to our chart and understand what Paul is saying here. The movement comes from God. It is your surrender that allows you to walk completely humble. So every excuse you say that says, I cannot be completely humble is absolutely a lie, completely a lie. Let's let that set in. You say, well, nobody's perfect. Well, Jesus is perfect and said, be perfect. So what's your problem? Right? Unbelief now. Right? So it's unbelief. But you say, how do I become perfect? What do I do? See, that's where we have to understand the difference between actuality and potentiality. I can no more make myself perfect than I can make myself a bird, but I can be made perfect. And then because of Christ moving in me, I can live perfect. See, I can be made humble as Christ transforms my heart, and then I can be moved to be humble. Do you see how that works? So is there ever a time when I come to you as a pastor and you're not walking worthy of your calling, which Paul commanded us to do, is there ever a time that you have an excuse to not be all that God called you to be? No, because the very laws of motion come from where? Who's our prime mover? Okay, so the very fact you're moving in sin shows that you have movement, but you're doing the wrong thing. You need to repent and get in line with God. Keep in step with the Spirit. Stop resisting the Spirit. Can I show you that again where it says don't resist the Spirit? That's what people are doing when they're living in sin. It is a resisting of the Spirit. Do not resist the Holy Spirit. This is in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, when they're rebuking the Jewish people who had had the law of God all of these years and we're not obeying it. Listen to what Philip says to them, uh, Stephen rather. He says, you stiff-necked people. See, you're, you're not wanting to move your neck. You're you're the one stiffing in motion. You're making the motion of resistance. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's get uh, um, Be Benny. Let's get Vinny to come up, please. Too many things on my mind. Now watch. Just stand up right here. If he doesn't resist my motion, watch what happens. See, if he doesn't resist my motion, that's what he's doing. See, that's a synergy. Let's just dance a little bit. See, if he doesn't resist my motion, watch. Watch how natural that is for this man right here. Right? If, if, if he doesn't resist my, my motion, look how easy he just spins, right? Now resist that motion. Look, but see, now there's a, see, there's, but there's still a motion that he's making, a movement he's making, a strength he's exerting. But it's not to love God in this example. It's not to go with the flow. It's to resist the flow. It's not dancing with the divine. So the person who says, I can't be completely humble, is actually lying completely to you. Because if they just re resist resisting and start being humble, Let's give it up for Vinny Barbarino. Thank you, sir. How many got something out of that little rabbit trail? Did you get something? You see, we need to let the energy of God flow through us. I know that sounds new agey, but that's Christian. Let the energy of God flow through you. Let the steps of the Spirit be your dance today. Let what God is moving in you move you. Don't resist it. 
And I can tell you after 20 years of Christianity, that is exactly how it works. I am not taking my personal experience and forcing it on the Scripture. That's why a lot of preachers have to force things upon the Scripture. I let it speak for itself, no matter how tough or how grandiose it may sound sometimes, like I'm the righteousness of God or I'm holy as he is holy. That may sound so grandiose that I can be completely humble because you know the first thing that when I say, well, I can be completely humble, what's somebody going to say? Well, nobody's completely humble. No one. <laughs> And they just want to be like that, you know, like a little rat. I'm just a little rat. I'm just a little rat. No way. Come here. Come here. Little rat in the flesh. A little sneaky snake. Nobody can be completely humble. You know what I'm saying? Like a little rat or a little sneaky snake want to get into your mind and tell you, no, it's a command. What don't we understand about the command? That's why I'm taking all of this time to bring in philosophy because when we say be completely humble in this generation, people want to make an excuse. But this is the, this is the anguish of man, actually, as I wrote about on Facebook. This self-centered pride is what brings us our anguish and our pain, and God wants to deliver us from ourselves. He wants to deliver us from our pride completely all the way. So let's look at actuality and potentiality. Look at the scripture. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So I've already received the calling. That means that's actually who I am today. How many are Christians? How many are born again? Well, then you receive the calling. The calling is yours. You don't have to live worthy to receive the calling. That's not what it says. It doesn't say do all of these good things and then God will call you up and say, I need you now. No, it says walk worthy of the calling you already received. My child received the calling at birth to be my son or daughter. Now they learn to live worthy of it. I don't say now that you're born, live worthy and prove yourself to be a son or daughter. No, they are first born, and by that, they're already by default worthy to be called to be my son or daughter. And then I teach them how to live like a stick, right? We talked about that last week. And so once we're born again, I'm not doing things to try to prove that I'm a child of God or to earn it. No, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by the love of God. But what I do now now that I'm born again in my identity, I start to bring forth my potentiality by the activity, the synergism of me and God. God and I moving together through life. Look at identity, who you are. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. How many are God's handiwork today? How many are a new creation? Is God still whittling away at you to make you a new creation, or are you made a new creation at new birth? You are one right now. But look at how verse uh, 10 continues on to the potentiality, what you can do. Look at the other side, Ephesians 2.10, the second part there, part B. To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So now that I'm made a masterpiece of God, do I just say, well, I'm your puppet and you just move me? No, no, no. Now I move with God as he moves me to do all of these good works which were already prepared in advance. Do you see how it works? God actualizes his identity in me. I become a born-again Christian. By the grace of God, I never could earn it. And now he tells me the potential of the life I can have. And he says, this is the activity that I want you to do. How many of you want to be in the activities of God? How many want to live a life worthy of your calling? The calling of being a handiwork. The calling of being a new creation. The calling of being a child of God. How many want to live worthy of that? 
Amen? Now look at it again. This is actual. This is actual factual. This is your identity. And I just saw my dad put it up on Facebook. 1998, he made a faith confession of his identity, and he still prays like that today. And I said, Dad, I must have learned that from you because I've been making faith confessions ever since I've known Jesus. I got saved in 95. And a faith confession is just a bunch of these scriptures laid out that you can put on your wall or your mirror or put on your phone so you can look at and say, I'm the righteousness of God. I'm God's handiwork. I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. See, these are the things that will get you moving. These are the things that will have you to get faith in God, to work with God, to work out your salvation, to work out from the gift that God has given you in advance to do. What do you have as a Christian? Well... Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with how many spiritual blessings in Christ? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Is that actual? Is that a potential or is that actual? Actual is right now, isn't it? So the actual seed is in your hand. It's actually in your hand. But what is the potential of that seed? An entire apple tree, an orange tree, a fruit tree. Are you tracking with me today? What is actually on the inside of you right now? The Holy Spirit. Who are you actually right now? A born-again child of God. Who are you? You are a king's kid. What do you have? All the treasures of heaven. Praise God. Now, potentially, what can you do? How can you live worthy of your calling? Well, what you can do is be God's workmanship that does the good works. And then number two, look at the complementary to this, to, to knowing I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. But what we just read in Ephesians 4, 2 says, now be completely humble. Now be gentle. So now, Joe, you make that decision. Joe, don't, don't resist the spin of the Lord. Hear what God is doing in your heart. When you're with your wife, when you're with your kids, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort. How much effort am I supposed to make? Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How many got something right there? Amen. Can I show those to you in depth right now as we get ready to close this out? Because I want to start preaching a little bit shorter in the new year so we can make the transitions a little bit easier. So please be patient with me. I haven't lost my fuego. I just want to make it easier for our children's workers. Amen. So my introductions are going to be a little bit shorter. That was the introduction. But watch this now. Being completely humble. How many believe being completely humble is doable? In Christ it is. In Christ it is. I am actually right now given everything I need to be completely humble. When I am not completely humble, I am resisting the turn of the Lord. I am resisting the step of God. So what is humility in the body of Christ, the church? What are we supposed to be like as Christians in the world, in our family? What does humility look like? Humility is the right mindset of who you are and who you're not. That's simply all humility is, recognizing who you are and who you're not. See, John the Baptist was one of the most humble people that walked the earth. This is what John the Baptist knew. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. He is, and I am not. He knew that, but he knew who he was. But I am a voice calling out in the wilderness. I am a forerunner preparing the way of the Lord. Not worthy to untie his sandals, but I am worthy by God's grace to baptize him. Are you listening? See, God determines who you are and who you're not. There is no problem with the greatest basketball player saying, I'm the greatest, or the one wanting to achieve great things saying, I'm going to achieve great things. That is living out your destiny. God wants you to be great in his kingdom. 
He doesn't want you to have a false humility. He says, I'm a nobody. I'm just a nobody. I don't have anything. Because that's a self-abasing pride. That's not true. You are somebody. You have something to offer in the world. And that's why when you go to job interviews, if you're not confident, they'll hire the other person. And sometimes, yes, confidence is equated with being a jerk and being rude and all of those things. But we need to show the world what a godly confidence looks like. And so believe you are who God says you are. And that you can do all that God said you can do. You know, it's like looking for a backhanded compliment if I come to you and go, well, I'm just a terrible pastor. I stink at this. No, because then I want you to come up to me and say, no, no, you're a good pastor. You're doing good. See, that's my insecurity speaking like that. I should come before you today and say, I'm the best pastor for Metro Praise International. You know, I'm not saying I'm better than Bertle and all that. I'm saying for what I'm called to do, I'm the best at it. No one can do better than what I'm called to do here, than what I'm doing. Amen. I'm doing the best at what I'm supposed to do here, and this is the best for what God has for you. Now, can I grow? Is spiritual growth a part of the plan? Absolutely. But I am not growing to be somebody that I'm not already. I'm growing into the person that I already am. Do you see the difference? It doesn't matter. My son is not, let's say we were to give my son an inheritance. My son is not growing up to earn the inheritance. He's living up to the inheritance. He's not trying to earn the inheritance. He's living up to the inheritance. He's walking worthy of the inheritance. And so you need to avoid pride's two manifestations. One is self-adornment, which does go from confidence to just, you know, look at me. Now it's not just being confident. Now it's just, I'm so awesome and you suck and I'm the best and all this. No, that's self-adornment. When you're starting to put others down and you're becoming vain, there's a difference. There's a difference, and the Spirit will teach you the difference between confidence and vanity. Can I hear an amen? And then self-abasement is, woe is me, I'm so terrible. So God wants us to avoid those two things and be completely humble. Just be who he's called you to be. Be who God's called you to be and do what he's called you to do. The next thing is the Bible says, be gentle. And I like the word meek better than gentle. I know some, it may sound easier to understand gentle because like, you know, gentle. But I like meek because gentle almost sounds like you're not strong. Like gentle just sounds like you're always like just walking on eggshells or, or you, you know, you can't be a man in, in other words. So as a man, I prefer the word, it's the King James word, meek, because then I can make this play off the word. Meekness is not weakness. See, Jesus was gentle, but he wasn't a push around. He wasn't a doormat. When Jesus, when, when God told him to get down in that temple and to get out the whip and to start whipping people, he did that in gentleness. That was God's way of him doing it. See, the word gentle may not fit there as well, right? But he did it in meekness. That's why I like the word meekness because it fits all categories. Jesus was always meek even when he had to be a strong disciplinarian. Okay, And our soldiers can be meek even as they're dropping bombs on Syria and lighting things up. Amen? I believe that. I believe that we can be meek. It has more to do with your humility in that sense and how you're treating people as you would want to be treated. And even in the times of war, we would want to treat people the way we would want to be treated. So meekness is not weakness, but it's that strength under control. And we should only, here it is, watch this. That's why I said it's even applicable in war. Because you'd say, how can I be gentle in war? Once again, that's why I like meekness. Because you can be meek meek even in war because it's truly this definition here of meekness really means only exerting the level of strength, emotion, boldness that's needed for the situation. So if I have to spank my kids, see, it's not going to be a gentle spank. Do you get it? But it's going to be a meek spanking. 
Some of them can see the word. Some of you guys can see those words the same. You're going to do it gently as compared to harshly. Maybe that would be a better comparison for you. But once again, I like the word meek because it shows me sometimes I got to be a disciplinarian, but I'm going to do it in meekness. I'm not going to overexert myself. And so that's the same thing in life. When we're dealing with people, we're not overexerting our energy. We're not forcing our way upon them. We're not trying to become a dictator in their life. We're gentle with them, like the Bible says, even as a parent, and we're meek among them, but we're not weak. So here's the way I like to look at it, is that Jesus never responded to people without filtering his emotions through the will of the Father. If you can have a moment at the temple on your job, that's good. Make sure you filter it through the Father, though. Because if you start throwing stuff around on your job, just make sure God told you to do that. Are you listening to me? And the same thing as a parent. You're going to spank your kid, do it filtered through the emotions of God. That means if Jesus was in the room while you were spanking a child, you would have nothing to be embarrassed about. See, this is the emotional outlook that God gives us for life. He wants us to be humble. He wants us to be meek. The next thing that he tells us is he wants us to be patient. I like another word, the King James here as well, better. I like, like this because it explains to me more what patience actually is. Patience is long-suffering. I love that old, tets, that, that old school word. How many understand what long-suffering means? Being patient means you're going to suffer long in traffic. You're going to suffer long with people's attitudes. It will, it will feel like suffering. Patience is not just, oh, you guys are so cute and cuddly. No, patience is oftentimes I am suffering as I'm dealing with you. Long-suffering is the choice to be kind and loving when people inconvenience you, misunderstand you, hurt you, and disrupt your day. No one is more easily upset by all those things than myself. I hate being inconvenienced. I hate when you misunderstand me. I hate being hurt. I don't like when you disrupt my day. And I know people call me other like, Pastor, I'm just taking a few moments of my time. But it's never come easy for me. It's always like, I wish I didn't have to take on issues at 11 o'clock at night because now somebody's life's falling apart. I want to do it around 9 o'clock in the morning. Are you listening to me? I don't want to do it in my pajamas. It's never come easy. But God has made me patient. So I have in me the seed. You can look at now the fruit of the Spirit. I have the seed of the fruit of the Spirit in me to grow out patience. So I have the potentiality, just like you do, to be as patient as Jesus was. You and I have the potentiality to be just as understanding as Jesus was, even of his own enemies, that he could say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, how many know, some of y'all would be like, no, 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 listen, Jesus, they know what they're doing. Look at how they put you up there. They know exactly what they're doing, Jesus. You would help Jesus. Like, look, they know. They, let me tell you how they know. They tweeted about it. They Facebook about it. They know what they are doing. They put a sign above your head, king of the Jews. They know what they're doing. But see, Jesus had enough long suffering suffering to say, you really don't know what you're doing. Because if you thought I was really the king of the Jews sitting on the throne, y'all would not be doing this right now. If you understood what hell looked like and where you would be going right now, you would not be doing this. Now watch this. Our, you could Facebook this. Our level of patience shows our level of trust in God. So the ability that, that we can suffer long shows the ability of trusting God. So my lack of patience actually doesn't show my irritation towards you. It actually shows my distrust towards God. Because there should be nothing that can move me from peace. Nothing moved Jesus from his peace, even the cross. Don't let things move you from your peace. And lastly, as Adam comes, we have to bear with each other in love. Rather, two things, but Adam, you could come up, please. Somebody say forbearance. 
I like this word forbearance as well, better than bearing with each other in love because forbear, forbear means I'm going to deal with your mess whether you deal with it or not. Come on, somebody. Can I hear an amen? Forbearance means forgiving people before they even ask for your forgiveness. Doesn't mean that you necessarily go to the same level of friendship or trust them in the same way. Trust oftentimes has to be earned. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, you know, hire somebody that has a criminal record that doesn't want to transform their life. I'm not going to be naive. You know, I will give people second and third chances, but you got to show that you're walking worthy of it, right? So we're not talking once again about being a doormat, but there will be people in life who will not deal with their mess, and you got to forgive them anyway. You can still teach them, you can correct them, but what you're doing is you're forbearing with them. So this doesn't mean we avoid the confrontation. What it means is we do it without bitterness. How many want to do that in life? Amen. And then lastly, we want to be unified. We want to be unified in this church and unified in our families as much as we can. The Bible says as much as you can, live at peace with all people and be under our leadership, whether it's the government, whether it's the church, and avoid division. The idea that we are here today, the church, the idea of the church is that we represent the kingdom of God. And so you are to be in the vision of the kingdom of God, a part of it, not just a oompa loompa to some Willy Wonka. How many don't want to be an oompa loompa? Okay, how many know I don't want to be your Willy Wonka? So we just stop that right now, right? So I'm not your Willy Wonka. I don't have dreams of being on GQ magazine. My wife doesn't want to be on the cover of InStyle today. We're not here to be uh, your celebrities. We're not here for that. Okay, so I don't want to be Willy Wonka, and you don't want to be Oompa Loompa, right? So let's just be in unity doing what God called us to do. Let's do what God called us to do. I'm going to do my part. You do your part. Our goal is to plant 50 of these. That means there's going to be 50 other people leading congregations like this. So obviously I'm not trying to keep this to myself, right? Uh, we have the Bible college raising up people. And then another thing that's amazing is that families. Everybody gets the chance to have a family. I think that's so beautiful. No matter what family you came from, you have the chance to have a family. You have the chance to get married, have children. Even if you can't have children naturally, adoption. And I don't even just say adoption for those who can't naturally have children. My wife and I are going to also adopt, and we've had a bunch of natural children, okay? But just everybody has the chance to have a family. Everybody has the chance to work and be fruitful. That's why I, you know, when I used to work in the inner city and I saw people struggling, you know, um, with their checks, and they, they would claim disability, and they'd be like, you look pretty good to me, you know. I bet you if I told you there was a fire in this house, you would run out pretty fast, you know. But they kept taking their disability check. And then, you know, you go to a place like Jewel, and you look at people with Down syndrome working and happy just to collect grocery carts. How many know that's a problem in our country? And I'm not saying people who collect checks have an issue. I'm just saying a lot of times people abuse these systems and don't want to do it right. I have no problem with those who are doing it right, okay? Just hear my heart on this. But how many know work is a blessing? That's what I'm trying to say. We shouldn't be afraid to work. We should want to work. And then we should want to work in a job that we're unified, that we all have the same vision. Like if I'm working at McDonald's, I'm not going to bring in Little Caesars on my lunch break, okay? If I'm working at McDonald's, I'm going to find something on that menu, and I'm going to order for McDonald's, and I'm going to enjoy McDonald's. I'm not going to go get my coffee now from Starbucks. Nothing bothers me more than when I'm at a restaurant and I'm ordering something and they say, no, this is terrible. It's better over here. Now, I know that they may be being honest, but they don't have to say all of that. It shows disloyalty, you know, and then you're going to wonder why you always at that same position for the next 20 years, right? 
You get what I'm saying? And it's because you don't know loyalty. Every business you work for, whether you're the owner, the, the entrepreneur, or an employee, or a manager, it doesn't matter. Every one of them wants loyalty, unity. Every family wants unity. And the Bible says we seek first his kingdom. We learn it with God, being unified with the Trinity, being unified with our God. We learn it in our family. We learn it in our church. We express it on our job. We express it in our community. It changes the world. Can I hear an amen? Would you stand up with me today? Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on. How many want to live worthy of their calling? Band, would you come with the altar workers? I want to live worthy of my calling today. I have actuality and potentiality. My actuality and potentiality are given to me as a gift from God. And it's up to me today to receive all that he wants me to have and then to walk with him and live it out. So as we close this sermon out today, get this in your heart. Living worthy of our calling shows the world that God is working in us to bring his kingdom through us. Amen? Father, I pray today that everyone will be who you called them to be. They will live it out today. The gift of motion, the gift of energy has been poured upon us today spiritually by the Holy Spirit. In you we live and move and have our being. Today, move us to follow your ways. Would you raise up your hands and say, Lord, move me. Come on, move me, Lord, to follow your ways, to keep your commands. Start to pray through the areas of your life right now that you want God to move you into, to see the blessing of the Lord in humility, in gentleness, in forbearance, in unity today. Come on, let us lift up our hearts to God and say, move me, Lord. I want to move with you today. Move me. today. Pray in your own words today. Move me, Lord. Move me, Lord. Move me to complete humility, meekness, unity. Hallelujah. Forbearance. How many of y'all need to forgive somebody right now who hasn't even asked for forgiveness? Forgive them right now. Start off this year with forgiving others. Treat them as you want to be treated, even though they don't know any better. I forgive my enemies, Lord. I forgive those who have hurt me, Jesus. Jesus, forgiveness, forgiveness. Jesus. Would you look up here before we dismiss and we'll keep praying because I always want to make time for altar time. Please don't be in a hurry with that. That's why we shift in a little bit from my preach time to this time to altar. But listen to this again. Paul is saying, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you received. Be completely humble. Somebody say that with me. I'll be completely humble and gentle. I will be patient. I will be forbearing in love and I will make every effort 
to keep the unity of the Spirit. Come on, say, help me, Jesus. Amen. Just a few more moments now before you go. Just let him know you need his help to move you today. He is the prime mover. Potentiality is real because of the actuality of our God. The activity of this world finds its origin in the activity of our God. Don't resist him. Move with him today. Let your life be a dance with the divine. A few more moments. Let it sink in today, saints. I pray for everyone here to catch it today. Lord, let them know that they know who you've made them to be. That these commands are not just like wishing upon a star type things. These are actual potential things you want us to do and be. We are your seeds meant to grow into fruitful vines engrafted into you, O oh Lord. Fruitful branches engrafted into your vine. Completely humble. Yes, Lord, that is me. Completely gentle. Forbearing. Hallelujah. Never divisive. Always unified. Do it in our church. Do it in our families. On our jobs in our country in jesus name and everybody say amen will you give it up for jesus come on we love you lord amen would you slap your neighbor high five and say live worthy of your calling god bless you enjoy the free time that we've given you or come up and worship and pray with us otherwise you're dismissed have a great week come on Oh